A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Amen. Thank you so much for coming to Crosspoint. And uh, since it's so cold, I decided to warm it up by talking about sex today. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's fantastic. See? We're doing everything we can to melt the ice. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, we're, doing a series called, we're doing a series called Money, Sex, and Power. And uh, Brad, okay, am I ready? Okay. That's my bad, dude. I'm always jacking up technology. It's just part of what I do. Money, sex, and power. And the question is, why would we do a series uh, on such uncomfortable topics? I mean, these are just really, these are topics that really elbow their way into our personal lives, into, into areas of our life that we consider to be extremely private. We Americans take these areas like, don't be messing with my money, because that's my mama. And don't be messing with my sex. And don't be messing with my power. You see, these are issues that are really sensitive. But the reason why we want to do it is because we believe that God is good. He's the creator. He wants to come into these areas of our life. And we believe that if God is the center of our money and our sex and our power, our lives will be transformed into happiness. Now, I'm going to tell you what Christians have to say about money, sex, and power is completely different than what the world has to say about these things. You understand that, right? We are extraordinarily weird people. Everybody say weird. But I tell you what, I like weird in comparison to normal. How about you? Because normal in our culture isn't looking very good. It's bondage. It's brokenness. It's hurt. It's need for healing. And oftentimes it's because because the world does not take the same perspective about money, sex, and power that God does. And I'm going to tell you something else. For 2,000 years of Christian history, Christians have been gathering in buildings and in caves and in homes and in big cathedrals. 2,000 years. And we have always been different in these areas than the surrounding culture. It's not like we can say, oh, America's gone so bad and now we must say something because now they have left the Bible. Listen, the world was never on the biblical game plan ever. In the Roman Empire, when churches were first coming up, and Paul was telling people, you can't have sex except for in marriage, Roman people were going, you are a freak, okay? That's what they were saying. And we are in the same situation. Everything we have to say about sexuality is going to be radically different because God is uncommon. He is completely different than what man comes up with. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we talk about sex... It's going to be a lot different than the way that the world talks about sex. Now, today I've chosen as my passage uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And what we got to do before we go to that passage and really break it down is we have to decide what is going to be our view about sex. What's going to be our view about sex? Just as human beings, I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, Whether you believe in God or not, you have to decide, what's going to be my view about sex? What is to be my relationship with sex? And there are three options, of course, to make it convenient. Number one, your first view and the first option you have is sex is God. 
It's an idol. It's the ultimate. It determines what happiness is. It determines what fulfillment is. In fact, sex determines identity. It's who I am. Don't mess with my sex life because if you mess with my sex life, if you say something different about my sex life, then I say, well, then you're messing with my very identity. You see, this is culture. Culture says about sex, it's God. This is why culture can't sell shaving cream unless it makes you think that you will be seductive unless you use their shaving cream, right? This is why they can't sell shampoo unless they put a hot woman on the commercial. This is why you can't watch a football game without, you know, some explicit Victoria's Secret commercials coming up on the screen. The reason why this is allowed is because culture says that sex is God. If you miss out on this, you're missing out on everything. If you miss out on what is happening over here, oh my gosh, you are missing out. And all of us, I mean, let's be honest, this is an honest talk about sex. But when we were growing up, wasn't this the big deal? You know, sex was God to us. Uh, it was in our music. It was in our, on, our, on our television screens. It was on our pull-out stereos that we put in our Camaros. <laughs> pull-out super tuner number three, baby. Green or red lighting available. Anyways... <laughs> Right? I put it, you know, I had those cassette tapes, boom, you know what I mean? And we were singing about sex and th- we were worshiping it. We were saying, you are God, sex, you are God, and she is God, and you are God, and together you are God. You know what I mean? I mean, it was just, it was God. And that's what's happened. And what you, when you, where you can really see that sex is God and it's an idol to be worshiped in our cultures, you can see it in the statistics dealing with pornography in our country. When you begin to look at the cold, hard facts of how many people are addicted to pornography, to all forms of deviant behavior and brokenness, you begin to see not only is our country worshiping sex as God, but this God is turning on people, and it's possessing them, and it's destroying their lives. Now, I'm not going to list a bunch of statistics because this is a place where I don't want you to be too depressed, but i got to list some statistics to prove to you this very point I'm making. If you go to xxxchurch.com, you can find these statistics and plenty more pages upon pages of horrible statistics. But here's a statistic from this website. 70% of Christians struggle with pornography in their lives. 70%. 33% of clergy in the church struggle with pornography. The statistics of missionaries out on the missionary field, the people we consider the most godly people, and they are. They're doing wonderful work. But now that they have internet and computers, they too are now beginning to struggle with pornography. But going outside of the church and beginning to look at at the outside world, we begin to see that pornography in the world is a $4.9 billion industry in the world. Americans spend $2.84 billion, so nearly half of the world's income in this industry of pornography comes from Americans. That's more money than if you took all the money that's spent on football, baseball, playoffs, Super Bowl, basketball, all of our major sports combined. You take all of the profits we make on those, and then you take that number right there, and pornography blows it out of the water in our country. 
But see, sex is God. In fact, the, the day when Americans view pornography the least is Thanksgiving Day. This is our least favorite day to go to those websites. But during the week, the major day of the week when more people are on pornography websites than any other day of the week, guess which day it is? Sunday. Sex is God. It's on our phones. It's on our TV. It's everywhere. And we are called by society to invest, to tithe into this monster, to, to bow down at its altars, to go to Las Vegas where, where everything stays a secret. Sex is God, and it is a horrible God. Is that your view? Now, the second view, your second option, your second view option with sex is sex is gross. You say, well, sex isn't God. Sex is gross. And so when the secular world kind of puts sex up on this pedestal and says, this is the most important thing in the world, what religion does is it swings the pendulum all the way to the other side and it says sex is gross. In fact, sex is unclean. Sex shouldn't be talked about explicitly. It's not holy enough to be dealt with. And you could look at any major religion in the world from Hinduism to Islam. If you want to be the most holy person, you'll take a vow of chastity. You'll never have sex, ever. You want to be a Buddhist? You want to reach the highest pinnacle of Buddhism? Take a vow of chastity. If you, want to, if you want to be the greatest Hindu that the world has ever known, take a vow of chastity. In Catholicism, priests have to take a vow of chastity to pastor their churches, which is why I'm not a Catholic. Amen? <laughs> this is crazy talk. And even in evangelical circles where I come from, even in our tribe, in our world, in the churches that some of us grew up in, more fundamental, more conservative, Bible expository, by our lack of conversation about these topics, by not talking about this in explicit and very clear ways, we are implying to our children, to our churches, to each other, that sex is really an unclean thing. It's kind of gross. That's certainly not as bad as saying sex is God, but let me tell you something, it's really close. Because what we know about sex is it's not God for sure, amen? And it's certainly not gross, amen? But what sex is, is it's a gift. Is that your view? Sex is a gift. <laughs> sex is a gift from God. It's, it's a part of the created order. In fact, the first time that we read about sex is in Genesis chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. You can. I mean, it's a free world. But Genesis... <laughs> We're not communists, okay? Uh, but Genesis chapter 2, in the creation account of man and woman... God says to Adam, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Guys, can I get an amen? amen. Ladies, can I get an amen? amen? I mean, don't be leaving your dude alone because it ain't good. <laughs> right? I mean, God creates Adam and he's like, Man, it really is not good that he be alone. 
And so what God does is he gives them some lower tab or some kind of drug to put them to sleep, amen? And, and it goes to sleep, and God, as he goes to sleep, goes, on, goes to surgery on Adam and pulls out of Adam a gift and shapes and forms a woman. And when Adam wakes up from his slumber, he looks at his new wife, this gift, and she has no clothes on, and he's so happy about that. And he sings the first erotic song known in human mankind. The first love poem, the first love letter comes out of his lips. Even in most of our Bibles, it sets the typeset in the middle so that you know this is a poem happening here. And he says in verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it goes on to comment, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now theologians will tell you that that one flesh language has all kinds of theological implications. And certainly you could say to me, Well, one flesh is more than a physical idea, Pastor Josh. Ah, but it's not less. That one flesh language is sexual language. That is the idea that God has given to man and woman this gift of sex. And what we learn from that chapter all the way to Revelation is that biblical sex is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. That's what God says. God says to us, sex is not God, it's not to be worshipped, it's not ultimate. He says sex is not gross, it's not unclean, it's not unholy. But what it is, sex is a gift given to one man and one woman in the context of marriage. That is biblical sex. Anything outside of that is deviant. Anything exploring other ways is deviant. If you choose to go your own way outside of that game plan, then you are making sex your God. You're saying to sex, you can leave me wherever you want me to go. I'll just go wherever, wherever you lead me, I will go. Oh, there's a song about sex. Now I will go and have sex. No, 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 no. Sex doesn't determine what you think about sex. God determines what we think about sex. And it's a gift. It's good. It's wonderful. But only in the context. One man, one woman. In marriage. In fact, the Bible talks about deviant forms of sexuality. One word it uses is it uses the word fornication. This is a, 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 a mutation, a, a, an ex exploration beyond what God wants us to do. Fornication is when a, a boy and a girl aren't married together and they have sex together. Our culture calls that dating, but in in the Bible, it's fornication. If you have sex before marriage, you're, you're exploring, you're, you're taking this fragile, wonderful gift from God and, and, and you're beginning to break it and you're losing its grandeur, you're, you're losing its specialness. And I know when you hear the word fornication, you think of preachers from Oklahoma, you think of, of TV preach fornication. But it's dangerous. It's killing people. It's ruining people. 
The second word is adultery. Adultery is when a married person has sex with somebody who they're not married to. That's adultery. Jesus talks about it. It's part of the Ten Commandments, Seventh Commandment. As we say at my household, thou shalt not commit adultery because a man or woman walk faithfully together in marriage, right? Seven. Okay. I'm sorry. The third deviant form of, and, and, and a destructive form to this gift, and this is probably the most controversial, and by the way, this might be one of the reasons why persecution comes to the church again in America. I think we're going to start really suffering from our culture for our stance on this, is homosexuality. When a man and a man come together and they have sex, that is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Or a woman and a woman come together, that is a sin. It's outside of what God meant for us to be a gift. And let me tell you something. There was a pastor who was a pastor of a big church in Atlanta, Georgia. Of course, what church in Atlanta, Georgia isn't large, amen? They're all big down there. I mean, it's like steroids down there with churches. You stick a church in Atlanta and it just... Anyways... This pastor, he preached a sermon, much like the one I'm preaching right now, and he was picked to do the inauguration benediction for President Obama. And when they pulled that sermon, just like the one I'm preaching here today, that dude was gone, man. And let me tell you something. You're going to be considered weird and uncommon, and you're not going to be liked. You're going to be called a bigot. You're going to be called everything in the book. But let me tell you something. You join your brothers and sisters throughout 2,000 years of history. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And let me tell you something. If it leads us to jail or closing down our tax status or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because sex is a gift, and we want what God wants for our lives. And when you view sex as, as a gift from God, celebrated between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, you've got to protect it because it's a very fragile gift. It's kind of like if you got uh, some china for Christmas, you know what I'm saying? And you take that china as a gift. You don't put it in the middle of the living room where all the kids play and they can just kind of do whatever they want with it, right? You put it in a safe spot. You put it in a place where you can cherish it and remember it and enjoy it, and and it's wonderful. And that's how fragile sexuality is in our culture, in our lives, in our bodies. That's why in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 4, he tells the church, and this is what we're doing today. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. You see what he's saying? He's saying, take this gift of one man and one woman and the marriage bed. Take this gift and protect it. Make sure you surround it. Make sure you're taking good care of it. And so we come to our text. That was my introduction. This is my sermon. We come now. To Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. You can hear from what, from what Will read from this passage that Jesus is concerned to protect marriage. He's protecting the man and the woman and the marriage home. Something very few people want to do anymore, by the way. But he's protecting it. And he's saying if you want to protect the gift of sex, this gift that God has given to us, then what you've got to do is you've got to go to the root problem that leads to all of the problems that we have with sex. You've got to get rid of lust in your life. 
Lust is the root of all forms of fornication, adultery, homosexuality. Jesus is going to the core of our problem. And he's like, if you can cut out lust in your life, then you'll be protecting biblical sexuality. And he gives us a few principles. And I want you to write these down or just remember them. Tuck it away. You know what I mean? Put it, put it on that shelf that you can refer to often. But what I want you to do is I want you to see that Jesus wants us to walk in light of a few principles that will help us protect the gift of sex and to get rid of lust in our life in particular. And the first principle you've got to walk in light of, young and old and everyone in between, is you've got to walk in light of what I call the link principle. Jesus is talking about a link. And the link Jesus is making is he's making a link between our sexuality and our spirituality. He's saying our sexuality and our spirituality are forever linked together and they feed one another. And if one gets off, then the other get off. You can't compartmentalize sexuality and then spirituality. You can't say, well, sexually, I'm going to go do whatever I want. But over here, spiritually, I really want to hear from God and I want love and I want, I want his compassion and his leadership and I want to know what his will is for my life. But over here in my sex life, I want to do whatever I want. See, Jesus like, you can't do that. Sexuality and spirituality come together. And if your sexual life goes wrong, well, then your spiritual life will be all jacked. You can see this in this passage. Number one, he brings up the Ten Commandments, right? So that's like, that's like Biggie on the eye chart in the Bible, right? Ten Commandments is like, that's the first thing. The second thing, he talks about amputation. Did you hear that in the reading? He talks about amputation. He's like, man, take out the eye, chop off the arm. I mean, that's when you know Jesus is being very serious, right? He's not like, you might want to put some Band-Aids on this. He's like, dude, you need to take out some eyes. You need to chop off the arm. And what that tells us is that he's being very serious. He's being very emphatic. Now, we know he's love. We know he's love because he demonstrated his love. We know now that he died on the cross. We know that he said, come to me. I'm gentle and humble of heart. I will give you rest for your soul. So we know that he's not trying to be severe to be mean. He's being severe because he's saying, this matters. But the other thing, the reason why we know that he takes this seriously and he's linking sexuality with spirituality is he brings up hell twice. Did you hear that? He's like, let me tell you something. Here's, here's what he says in my own words. Lord, forgive me. He's like, look, it's better to go limping into heaven than it is leaping into hell. So chop off the leg or the arm or take out the eye, whatever. It's better to have God and one eye than to miss out on God and you've got two eyes. It's better to have nothing and win God than to win the world and lose your soul. It's better to lop off the arm and the eye because this matters to God. Do you see that? He's saying sexuality and spirituality are forever linked. This matters to God more than it matters. And you might think it matters to you. This might be like the ultimate cause in your life. I'm going to fight for my sexual liberty. I'm going to fight for my sexual rights. Let me tell you something. God will fight harder than you in eternity forever and ever and ever. And he's fighting even now for his own. He has every right to define what it is. And he's like, listen, man. 
what you've got to realize is that if you can get this in order, then it's an opportunity to experience God. And if you begin to experience God, you're going to know you're experiencing God when he's working in this area of your life, when lust is no longer a problem, when, when, when your faithfulness in sexuality is good. What the world will tell you, though, is quite different. See, the world's going to say, you know, sex is really just a biological function of the body. <laughs> sex is physically what eating is. I mean, you know, when, you, when you're hungry... What do you do? You eat a meal. If you get turned on, you gratify. You, you seek gratification. It's, it's the same thing. But Jesus tells us it's not. And you know what? Anybody in here, whether you're a believer or not, everybody in here can agree with this. Something more is going on in sex than just physical, right? There's an emotional component. There's a spiritual component. There's soul. And you know it. You've seen it in your own life when you failed, or you've seen it in somebody else's life when they failed. You see it, how broken we become. This is why we sing songs to each other. This is why we write each other nice little poems, and we say, I love you, I love you, I love you. I want the birds and the bees and you and me. And, you know, I never wrote that. That's... Uh, that's, Sherry never got that, all right? It's a lot better when I write to Sherry. That's why we feel things, because there's so much spirituality and emotion to it. And when we think that it's only physical, that it's like, that it's like a, just a physical appetite, we're walking away from reality. That's why I, I heard about a men's retreat. There was 500 men at this men's retreat. They did a survey. 90% of the men said they felt disconnected from God because they struggled with lust and pornography. It had gained a foothold in their life. And they knew that they were feeling disconnected from God because of lust. They could not share a life with God and fellowship with God because of lust in their life. And neither can you. Now, I believe, I mean, I'm a good, firm Calvinist. I believe that Jesus earned my full salvation on the cross, that salvation is by grace, not through works. I believe that by placing my faith in Jesus, I'm going to heaven, and nothing can separate me from the love of God because it's not my works that save me. It's Jesus' love and grace and forgiveness that saves me, and I've placed my faith in him, and based on that, I'm going to heaven. When you come to my funeral and they say I'm dead, don't believe it. I'm not dead. I'm with Jesus. And when they say, Josh is here looking at us, I will not be looking at you. I'm going to be driving my chariot of fire on the roads paved with gold. I'm going to be at Jesus' feet. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to love him more than you, and I love you a lot. But let me tell you something. If you want to have fellowship, daily fellowship, and taste and see that God is good in your life, you cannot have a deviant form of sexuality in your life. You can't. You can go to church all you want. You can pray all you want. You can do whatever all you want, but it won't happen. The link principle is eternal. The link principle comes from Jesus. You cannot separate it. And if you're not a Christian, listen, this is very serious because I believe this, and so if I believe this, I would tell you this. If you're not a Christian... And you've got lust, and you've got sexual problems, and you don't come to Jesus, 
All that sexuality in your life is just pointing you to a place that you're going to go to, eternal torment and hell forever and ever. And those fires are real, and that darkness is black, and it is forever. And to be separated from God forever in agony, that is not a good game plan. You come to Jesus, he will take care of you. You come to Jesus, he will heal you. The link principle. And so when we begin to get fired up and we say, well, this is an opportunity to experience God because my sexuality and my spirituality is connected, then you're ready for the second principle, which is a dangerous principle. It's a a graphic principle, but it's a principle nonetheless. I call it the cut principle. You say, Jesus, I need you to be more practical. I believe sexuality and spirituality are connected, but I'm struggling, man. I'm struggling, and I need some practical advice on what to do. And Jesus says, no problem. I'll be very specific. And so he says in verse 28, look at Matthew 5 and 28. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, aren't you glad you have me as a pastor? I get to explain this to you. And it's so much fun. But we know. Because we're good at interpreting the Bible here at Crosspoint. We know that Jesus is not being literal. Can I get an amen? If he were being literal, then we would have a little bucket at the back of the church. And we'd be lopping off our eyes and dropping them in the bucket. It'd be like a Walking Dead episode on steroids. And then it would confirm people's worst nightmares that Christians really are zombies. But alas, we are not zombies. We are born again. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. And Jesus is merely being evocative and provocative to let you know that you must take immediate action. That band-aids and nice good feelings are not enough. That you must be severe in cutting out lust from your life so that you can protect the gift of marriage, which is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. You must cut. As I say in my counseling sessions, sometimes with couples, I say, you got to cut it out. Just cut it out. If something is causing you to lust, then you need to cut it out of your life. If something is harboring in you, it causes you to harbor impure thoughts, you've got to cut it out. If it's a book that you like to read or a series or a movie or vampires and wolves and... Girls, you've got to cut it out. If something is causing you to stumble, even if it means less money, even if it means sacrificing things that are important to you, even if it means that you can't have ESPN anymore, oh my gosh. And what's awesome about what Jesus is saying is he's trusting you and he's giving to you the freedom to think reflectively, relationally, using your imagination and looking at your own life and deciding what it is that you need to cut out so that you can be a faithful person in the area of biblical sexuality. So what is that for you? Because it might be different for you than it is for me, right? If that is, 
internet all together and you just cannot get on the internet at all without being tempted, you've got to cut it out. You've got to figure out how to get through life without it. You're like, man, that's like cutting out an eye. I'm going to be going through the world with one eye. Well, better to have one eye in heaven than two eyes and go to hell. See? If, if that means that you've got to adjust and budget your entertainment life, You've got, you got to budget your entertainment life just like with your money. Last week we talked about budgeting our money. This week we're talking about budget, budgeting your sight, budgeting your eyes. What can they see? What can they handle? Can you handle an R-rated movie? I, don't, I mean, that's a legitimate... I don't know. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. Maybe you really struggle. When I go to R-rated movies with, with uh, Sherry, we sit there and when the bad part comes, I don't care. I cut out my reputation in all dignity. And when the bad part comes, I go, oh, like that. And everybody's like, what a geek. I don't care. I don't care. Cut it out. See, in relationship with God and walking with Jesus, he says, I want to think. I want to walk with you through this. I want you and I to think about your life. I want us to think together about what we need to lop off in your life so that you can walk with me and experience God. And your sexuality and spirituality will be a healthy thing in your life. This also works for ladies. I mean, ladies, you want, to be, uh, 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 you want to be appreciated for your beauty. Some women really struggle with wanting to feel uh, seductive, uh, wanting, to, wanting men to turn and not just to see, but maybe to take a second or third glance. And so maybe you struggle with dressing provocative so that you can feel better about yourself. But certainly this would apply to you. Cut it out. Don't, don't cause other men to stumble. You know they struggle with it. You know we're visual. Cut it out. You say, well, man, that's a really harsh word from Jesus. Ah, but it's love. You know, it's like my parents used to say to me, I'm only spanking you because it hurts me more than it hurts you. You know, like, like, right. But now that I'm a parent, I believe them. It's true. Although I never spank my children anymore. I don't know what's happened to me. But anyways, the cut principle We all have to decide what it is we have to cut out. And that's so practical. It might be something very important to you, but is that thing more important to you than God? Is it more important to you than a healthy life? Is it more important to you than a good marriage? Is it more important than preparing you for a good marriage? Cut it out. And I've got a lot of parents here today who you've got little babies, and your little babies haven't grown up yet, and they're still in the nursery, and they're still crying. You're still getting up in the middle of the night and giving them bottles. But let me encourage you, young parents in particular, and all parents, of course, but listen, help your children cut it out early. Help them early and often. Talk to them about sex early. When they can learn English, talk to them about it. Don't wait until they're 12 or 13. Talk to them about it before it even gets uncomfortable for them. Talk to them about the biology of boys and girls. Let them know. Let them get settled into and comfortable with having the conversation with you. And you be the first authority that gives them the sex education. You don't let anybody else give them the sex education first. Because the world's not going to tell them to cut it out. 
They're going to tell them to put it on or to, you know, whatever, take the pill. or they're going to, The world's going to give them all other kinds of solutions because the world doesn't believe that sex is more than physical. And so if they can alleviate people from the physical uh, uh, harm that comes from sex, then it's assumed that they're safe. But listen, the only safe sex is between one man and one woman, virgins coming together on the wedding day. And sleeping together. That's the only true safe sex because sex is not just physical. You as a parent have to teach them early and often. And you've got to prepare them. You've got to say to your kid, we're weird. We're Christians. We we love Jesus. Hardly anybody loves Jesus anymore in this area. But, But we are weird. Just tell your kid, yes, we are weird and it is good. Amen. Praise God. Yes, you are a dork in comparison to them. But you're going to go to heaven. They're going to hell. It's good at the end. You know what I mean? Cut it out. Cut it out of your kid's life. Cut it out of your life. Do what you need to do so that you can walk with Jesus. Isn't that practical? But there's a problem. And the problem is this. That if our heart is not changed, then we don't want to cut it out. We simply don't have the motivation and the desire to cut it out. From day to day, there are moments in our life when we know what is right and and we know what the preacher said at church is right, but the emotion and the feeling and the fallenness of sin is so heavy that we ignore what we know is true and we refuse to cut things out of our life. And so the final principle I would give to you that you've got to walk in light of to protect the gift of sex is you got to walk in the heart principle. Listen, if your heart is not changed, you can, you, can, you can get all the religion in your life, but at some point in time, you will fall. The heart is what produces the problem of the eyes. Let me show you from Job how he, how he connects what we see with our eyes to our heart. Uh, Job says in Job 31 and verse 1, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I love that phrase. I made a covenant with my eyes. What a great thing to do. Guys, ladies, make a covenant with your eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He's saying, I made a covenant with my eyes, and how could I gaze? How could I look with lustful intent? How could I have a staring, driven life towards women? I can't do it. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Now watch what he says, though, later on. And this is my point. In verses 7 and 8, he says, If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. Do you see that? And if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. He's saying... If my heart has gone after my eyes. In other words, the problem isn't with what we're seeing. Jesus has no problem with us seeing an attractive person and going, that is a beautiful person. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a part of creation. To see beauty is creation. But to lust after, that's the part of fallenness. And what, what Job is saying is it's a heart issue. My heart goes after my eyes and my heart interprets what my eyes see. My heart decides how it's going to see things. My heart decides how it's going to use things or possess things. And our problem is not with what we're seeing with our eyes. Otherwise, we would cover our ladies head to, head to toe. Even the nose would be covered like over there in the Middle East. And we would just say, just don't look at women at all. 
But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus is saying in the gospel, and Job is saying, if the heart is changed, if the heart is good, then what you're seeing will be okay because your heart will tell your eyes how to see things. That's the heart principle. And so when you, when you go over to Jesus and you supplement what he says here in Matthew 5 with Mark chapter 7, you begin to see why he came into the world in the first place. Mark chapter 7 Verses 20 and following, he says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil Things come from within and they defile a person. Now, this is completely different. The world, if you have a problem, the world's going to come to you and say, you know, if you just fix the stuff in your house or you just fix the environment of your life, then your behavior will change. But Jesus says our behavior is bad, not because of what's on the outside, but because of what's in the heart. And there's no human medicine that can fix the heart condition. The only one who can fix the heart condition is Jesus. And when we struggle with lust and we struggle with our sexuality, it's pointing to the fact that we need a savior. We need a liberator. We need Jesus not just to come in front of us and command. We need him to come on the inside and speak into our hearts. I'm telling you, the first step, you've got to become a Christian. You've got to become born again. And then once you've been born again, you've got to walk in what it is that makes you right with God. Your religion, your following rules doesn't make you right with God. Somebody asked Tim Keller, are you trying to say that homosexuals are going to hell? And he said, well, I'll tell you this much, heterosexuals aren't going to heaven unless they believe in Jesus. Right? Amen? You're not going to heaven because you're heterosexual. You're not going to heaven even if you abstain until you get married. You're not going to heaven until your heart has been changed. Jesus has come on the inside. And the way to grow in sanctification, the way to grow in maturity, is to come to Jesus and say, by the same grace that you saved me is the same grace I need for my my day-to-day life. You need not religion. You need a relationship with Jesus because he changes our heart. He gives us new desires. He gives us the grace that transforms our life. (laughs) And that's why the heart principle always leads us to... I think this verse is so great. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is so awesome as we walk in and protect the gift of sex in our life. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. And that that might be neutral things, uh, morally neutral things, but they get in the way. Lay it aside if it's a weight in your life. And sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that a great verse? Looking. You get that? Get it? Get it? Look to Jesus. Use your eyes. 
And look to Jesus, and as your eyes, spiritually speaking, look and lay hold of Jesus, he will change your heart, and then he'll give you the strength so that you can run your race with endurance. Me and my daughters just started running, right? And I hate running. Everybody say hate. I hate running. But it's time to spend time with my daughters. So I was running with them yesterday, and, you know, I get all pumped up. You know, I'm all fired up. I'm like, all right, girls, come on, let's go. You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, let's go. And then when they start getting tired, I start, you know, I'm like, keep your eyes on me. Come on. Come on, come on, you know what I mean? And they're like, okay, daddy, you know what I mean? And I'm like, come on, you know? And they're like, okay, daddy, you know? And they'll be exhausted. One of them, I won't point her out because it embarrass her, but one of them, I was, I was like, you got another minute in you? She goes, I've got 20 more, you know what I mean? I was like, right on, come on, come on, come on. See, ah, 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 that's gospel application. See, Jesus has forgiven you so that you can always look to him. You don't have to ever be afraid to go to him. Even if you failed every single day of your Christian life up to this day, he, be, he brings the starting line to where you're at. He says, look to the cross, which is proof that I still love you. In fact, it's proof that I love sinners. And you keep coming to me, and you keep your eyes fixed on me, and I'll help you run this race with endurance. Keep coming. And he's going to be, come on, come on, come on. And just by looking at him, you're like, okay, I got another 20 miles. I'm exhausted, but I got another 20. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the heart principle. If you try to do this on your own, of course, it's not going to work. People look at this. See, the world looks at this little section that we just studied here at Crosspoint and goes, that is so ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. And they're right. It's impossible. Who can live under this? Because without Jesus, it's just law. With Jesus, it's a new life. It's new desires. You're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. Who doesn't want a new beginning and a new life and a new heart and a new way of looking at the world? And Jesus gives it to you in his death, in his resurrection, in his gospel. And when you walk in it, then you'll have a life that's shared with God. And when you have a life shared with God, you will be salt and light in your world. And they might think you're weird, but secretly, they're going to want the relationships that you have. So just a few things as we close. Number one, repent. Repent. Repent means to do a 180-degree turn. Repent means to change your mind, to to, uh, make your worldview flexible to the Word of God. Repent. We all need repentance. Repentance. And repentance is a gift of grace. Jesus says you get to repent. Secondly, parent. Parent your kids. Have the uncomfortable conversations and have them frequently and regularly. I haven't even talked about the dangers of pedophiles out there in culture now. I haven't, t- I haven't even talked about the many dangers that they're going to face, not only emotionally and physically, but with other people. And if you talk to them frequently, regularly, you'll help them. And here's the third thing, surrender. Surrender to God in this area. Release your pride. Humble yourself under his mighty hand, and he will exalt you and show you a better way and a better life. Let's pray. God, how good you are to us in your word and to reveal to us all that you have for us. And and I just pray that you would really apply this word 
to our hearts and our minds. And Jesus, we're convinced that without you in our daily life, we really have no hope. It is you that lives in us, and it is you that must live through us. So we crucify ourselves now. We die to ourselves so that we can live in you. We die to our old life and our old ways. We thank you for the forgiveness and the grace that we have. We know that you are no longer influenced by our past, but we know that you want us to look fervently to the future. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Crosspoint, if you're new around here, we've been doing something new, and one of the new things that we want to add to our church is a time of prayer. If you have something you need prayer on, we want to invite you. But before we do, what we've been doing is just doing a few short testimonies to kind of just explain to you the power of prayer and how it can be beneficial. So I want everybody to give a warm welcome to Mr. Brad Aker as he tells us about prayer in his life. Brad? Thank you, sir. Yes, yes. Well, I just want to encourage any of you that are thinking of coming forward to do so because the power of prayer is just an awesome thing. Um, We got to experience here in church. Uh, Two years ago, I was fired from my job Mm -hmm. on a Saturday. Um, We were scared, had no idea what we were going to do. The next day, Sunday morning, I didn't want to come to church. I didn't want to get out of bed, just pull the covers over my head and forget everything. But... uh, Thankfully, Casey talked me into coming to church. Amen. Um, Because we hadn't found you yet, Howard Love was here preaching, and um, that morning he opened, had an open altar call, and Casey and I looked at each other, didn't even have to say a word. We both knew we were coming forward, and uh, came up front. Howard's wife came up and uh, prayed with us. She didn't ask us any questions. We didn't have to give an explanation, anything. She just laid her hands on our shoulders, and she said a prayer for us, and just the electricity that that flowed through her and through her words was just awesome. Mm-hmm. And anxiety was lifted, filled by just the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And um, I encourage any of you, you know, that are feeling led forward to do so because it, it's just, it's powerful. Amen. Thank you so much, Brad. So here's, here's what we want to do. Without being too weird, we want to be a little weird and just get awkward before God and open up the front to come down. If you want to come down and pray by yourself up on the steps, kneeling down, you can. If you want to come down to one of the front pews, you can. If you want to come down standing up and pray with somebody, you can do that. I'm available to pray. Other people are available to pray with you. If they come around and you're like, I want to pray, but... I'm okay by myself, then we'll be sensitive to that and move on. But let's take this moment where you're at or coming forward to pray. If you don't know Jesus and you want to become a Christian, I invite you to come forward, talk to me. Jesus said, whoever announces me before men, I will announce before angels. So you come talk to me and you'll become a Christian. We'll pray together and uh, you can take that step of faith. So whether you want to become a Christian or you have financial problems, health problems, or any other issue, come forward now and let us pray. I'm going to be the first one down and show you how it's done. So let's pray together. Listen to this promise as you go out. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. God bless you, and I'll see you next week.